Hi, my name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I remember thinking he was going to die. I remember looking on social media, thinking of the screaming irony, the painful turn of events that felt far more like a Greek tragedy than a news story, more like the end of a movie than a social media post. It was March 2020. I read in a Jewish publication that Eli Beer, the founder and CEO of United Hatzalah, a man who dedicated his life to saving other people, had been hospitalized with COVID in a Miami ICU. Before the comfort and miracle of vaccines, in the heart of the panic as the world put on its emergency breaks, thousands of miles from his family in Jerusalem, restricted to a hospital bed in a world of unknowns, as we locked ourselves into our houses at the start of the pandemic, Checking on Ellie's condition through social media was a daily habit of mine. I felt connected to him, though we had only met once. Still, I thought about him often. Ellie was locked into himself as he was put into a medically induced coma that saved his life. I thought, I have to say, that he was going to die. And I think he did too. And yet, he survived. Against all odds, he lives. This is my conversation with United Hatzalah's founder and CEO, Eli Beer. So your whole life and story flirts with the human reality of how close death always is both your own personal story and also your work in the organization. How do you think about that and how do you comprehend that in your mind? Well, it's funny you're saying that because I actually always compare the competition between us and the devil. We have a mission of getting to every emergency of every person who's not breathing within 90 seconds. And I always tell the volunteers, the paramedics, when they are driving the motorcycles, these orange motorcycles with the lights and siren. They have another motorcycle that's driving a black motorcycle of the devil. He wants to get there first. And our mission is to beat him. We have that flirtation with death, unfortunately, and we see that all the time, not only in my personal story, but my whole life. You know, I've been to, since the age of 15, on the back of an ambulance. And how many times did I see myself in danger or or been into a a terror attack where another terrorist was was there to hurt us and kill us. Thank God I'm alive now, and we could say the story. And I think in every generation, you have people who take responsibility to make sure that other people are safe. And that's Israeli soldiers, the police, firemen, of course, and, and volunteers of United Hatzalah and ambulance services. So this is our responsibility, and we actually don't think about it too much. Because if you do think about it too much, you might decide not to do it and stay home when emergencies are happening. What's your earliest memory? We'll, we'll speak about March 2020, but 
What's your earliest memory of hearing like the siren and ambulances in, in your youth? My earliest memory of ever seeing an ambulance actually was when I was five years old, almost six, when it was right next to a bus that blew up in my neighborhood in Baizvagan. I remember the screaming and yelling. I remember ambulances coming very late for a long time. I don't know how long, but it was a long time. And taxi drivers, it was right next to the taxi station, so taxi drivers were actually pulling in injured people into the taxis and saving them and taking them to the hospital. And then I saw the ambulances coming. So I remember the ambulances as a five-year-old boy, not understanding what what exactly is happening, and but seeing them and remembering them, and that's that's what followed me the rest of my life. And what's that feeling like for you when you know, like, waiting for, like, you're waiting for an ambulance and it doesn't come, and you're a kid and you're just watching this entire scene unravel and you can't really do anything? Well, as a as a kid, standing there as a five-year-old boy couldn't help anyone. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was happening. I knew people needed help. They were screaming for help, but I couldn't help. Growing up, I said, I want to fix that. I want to make sure that if something happens near me, I could save someone. I want to save people. And uh, I thought of, I didn't think of saving the whole world. I was thinking about saving one person. This was my dream since that childhood, not being able to save anyone. And then growing up and joining an ambulance in the age of 15, you know, usually kids don't join ambulances at the age of 15. Maybe here in Israel, it's different. Around the world, you don't see 15-year-olds in the back of an ambulance. I remember being in the back of the ambulance and just being anxious to get to the address, knowing that we're trying to get there, traffic and distance, and you're there and you're counting the seconds and then the minutes, and they, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen so fast. You think you're in an ambulance, you get there fast. You know, you don't get there fast. You're stuck in traffic like everyone else. How long did that frustration build up until the moment where you said, okay, I have to do something? Well, it started slowly, this frustration. The first frustration was, I remember this was a call that I rece- we received late at night of a lady w- with a heart attack in the end of Jerusalem, Gilo, which is south of Jerusalem. And it took us a few minutes to get into the ambulance because it was late at night, so the the driver was resting. We were volunteers. So I was 15 years old. I was waiting for the driver to, you know, get ready and jump out of the room and took time for the ambulance to actually, we had old diesel ambulances, so we had to wait a, like a minute till you started and everything. And I was counting literally the seconds to leave the station to start driving. It was four or five minutes till we started driving out of the station. And I was thinking with myself, this person that had a cardiac arrest, five minutes now is already brain damage. We didn't even leave the station. And we're talking about a brain damage. So um, it started building up slowly. And then when the incident that really changed my life was a, a year and a half after being in the back of an ambulance, thousands of hours. So really, the idea started when I was 16 and a half, because being in the back of an ambulance, I used to see the cars around us stuck in traffic, and we're trying to go through them. And then I used to see motorcycles delivering pizza. And they were, you know, they were not stuck. They just went through. And I said to myself, if anyone chokes, they should call for pizza. The, the pizza delivery guy is probably an army soldier. He probably knows how to save a life. So I said, if I, I have a choke, I'm calling for a pizza. And the, and the pizza delivery guy will come much faster. 
And it never made sense to me that we're always on a very big vehicle trying to save people. What we should be in a, on a motorcycle, two-wheel a motorcycle, and we should zoom through the traffic and get there faster. If we could take a helicopter, it would be better, but the best way would be a motorcycle. And then we had a seven-year-old boy who choked, and they called for help, and we were the ambulance that were allocated to respond to that emergency. And we had to cross through the whole city to get to this child, seven years old. And it took us 21 minutes to get there. And when we arrived, we found a child who was completely cold, blue. His mother's crying hysterical. And we and he was wet. And I didn't understand why was he wet. The neighbor thought he fainted, so he spilled a whole bucket of water on him. And we started doing performing CPR on a child who was not breathing. The worst feeling in the world. A beautiful kid. Just minutes before he was alive, talking and eating. And when we started CPR, a doctor runs in to help. He he heard the, the siren that you hear now outside. He heard a siren and then his neighbor so he came to help us. He said he's an emergency room doctor living nearby. And after about 40 minutes of work, he said there was nothing else we could do, just bring a sheet to cover him. And being in that situation, I, I was so, my heart broke. I was like, I couldn't function anymore. I yeah. saw this kid and I realized this kid could have been saved yeah. if this doctor would have known about it 20 minutes earlier. And it didn't make sense to me that ambulances are the first ones to come on a scene. Why aren't the neighbors who are professional on the scene before us? And I said, we need to have, we need to fix the problem. The life-saving machine is not working. We have a transport machine, but not a life-saving machine. Ambulances are not saving lives. People could save lives. Ambulances are great for transport and important for transport. Could save lives if the patient is right nearby. But you can't guarantee that, especially with the congestions they have all over. So I said, why don't we get volunteers to respond to emergencies before ambulances? And that's where the idea started. I was 16 and a half. I went over to the ambulance organization that I volunteered in my Dome, and I offered them to start this. And they said, it doesn't happen. It's not happening anywhere. Why should it? When someone calls for help in China, in Brazil, in America, in Europe, they get an ambulance. No one comes before an ambulance. Ambulances are the first ones to arrive. I said, no, but you have thousands of people nearby. It should be that the ambulance service should transfer their emergencies to the radio stations and TV to stop their broadcast and say, sorry, right now we have to stop the broadcast because in this and this street, a, a baby is choking. And if any doctor or EMT hears us, run there and save this kid. That's what it should be. So I, I offered this to them. They didn't like the idea. They actually dismissed me immediately and made sure that I leave the building. And I was very precise, and I, I, I was stuck. What do I do now? How do I get the emergency calls routed to us? Because they're the ones who receive it. Right. So I was stuck with a great idea of having responders respond before ambulances, but no way of getting the emergencies coming to us. So I decided to use some Israeli innovation called chutzpah, and I bought, with some money I had, my bar mitzvah money, and I bought in Radio Shack some walkie-talkie scanners. Uh, the young people wouldn't know what that is, but it's... Radio Shack or the scanners? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I bought some scanners. You could listen into the police and radio and the fire department and ambulances, and I smuggled it into Israel. 
And I started listening into the ambulance services. And every time they announced an address, we knew something was happening there. So we just ran there. And that's how we started responding to calls. And I, I said to myself, if that doctor would have listened to a scanner, he would have heard the minute the ambulance heard from, you know, 20 minutes earlier, he would have saved that child. And that's what I had in mind all the time. We need to hear about every emergency happening, run and respond there really quickly, stabilize the patient. And then when the ambulance arrives, they could take him to, to the hospital alive with no brain damage. So what was day one for United Hatsala? That was really day one, but it was a process to get the, the finished product that you see today. Yeah. It was a really early stage, like startup, you know, like we, we were 15 volunteers. We bought a few scanners. We started running to emergencies. The first emergency that I responded to was a man who was hit by a car and I was nearby and I got there within less than a minute. I heard the address. I heard what happened. It was a car accident and I got there and no one was touching him. They were scared to touch him. They didn't know what to do. And I was the only one who actually knew what to do because I was an EMT. So I knew I had to stop his bleeding. So I took off my yarmulke off my head and I used it as a tourniquet because I didn't even have, I had nothing on me. I only had a radio, walkie-talkie. And I stopped his bleeding by pushing my yarmulke into his wound. And then eventually when the ambulance arrived, they took him to the hospital. And two days later, he woke up in Hadassah Hospital here in Jerusalem. And I went to visit him. And he gave me this greatest hug in the world. And I saw he had a, on his hand, he had a, a tattoo with a number on it. He was 70 years old, Holocaust survivor. And I that moment was the moment that I decided that I'm going to dedicate my life for saving people. Wow. What year was that? 1989. And then today, Hatzalah is the premier emergency amuta in Israel and known in America. For, for immediate said, response. For immediate response. For immediate response. Look, we're not, we didn't try inventing an ambulance, a bigger ambulance, a nice ambulance. We tried inventing the idea of people getting response within 90 seconds. And that was the idea of United Hatzalah taking people from all around Israel, from all backgrounds, and getting them connected as a immediate response volunteer. Meaning, we took plumbers, we, put, we took electricians, we took taxi drivers, we took people who are willing to jump out of work or home, no matter which community they live in, and we would just connect them to the closest emergency. And the idea was that if we have enough people, the response will be quicker. And we started buying motorcycles and calling them ambucycles. We were the first ones in the world to do this, taking motorcycles, two-wheel motorcycles, turning into a, an ambulance motorcycle and giving it out to the volunteers so they could use it for the daily use. And they would respond to emergencies that way and literally save lives. The innovation here in United, United States strength is innovation. We have 6,500 volunteers now in Israel. Wow. Many of them come up to us, to me or to other leaders of the organization. They say, listen, we, we thought about an idea. We never dismiss anything. We think every single person could come up with an idea that could help us respond better and faster. Leadership, it all starts at the top. Do you think that subconsciously or consciously, that's you remembering how you were dismissed? Definitely. I always think about it. Like, I had a discussion with someone today in our organization they have this guy, he's chasing me after this idea he came up with. 
And I met with him twice already. And now he wants to show me, and he wants to show me the developments of this idea. It's a great idea. If it works, it's going to save many lives. And this guy says, okay, you know what? Let him wait a little more. You know, he's not ready yet to show you the... I said, you know what? I remember myself, how anxious I was to meet the head of the union of Magendra Dome to offer him this idea and how I felt after that meeting. And I say, people like me are existing today and they come up with ideas. Some of them are amazing ideas, technology-wise. Drones and different types of vehicles we're coming up with a new vehicle that was is created here in Israel. It's a car that expands double the size while it's driving, but when it's slowing down, it goes to the width of a of a motorcycle. It's a car for two people, and it's incredible. And the wheels go out and in. Basically, if you want to go faster, it goes out to give more stability. And then when you go slower in between cars, it goes like a motorcycle. Yeah. And we're looking into these things. How do we get our volunteers safer to an emergency and quicker? I want to pivot for a, a moment to March 2020. Do you want to tell kind of our listeners what happened to you in March 2020? I got it really bad. I was traveling a lot, like I always do. And I got to Miami. And while I was in Miami, I, uh, I didn't feel well. I felt something was weird. I was like, it was poor him. I was actually having a pouring meal by someone, and I like to drink a nice glass of wine. And that wine was terrible, not no taste. I didn't have any taste of wine. I said, something's wrong with your wine. He said, no, it's the best wine. This is like a $100 bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this is nothing. This wine is not good. And he gave me another bottle. I felt the same. So I, I, I said, okay, something is wrong. Either the bottles are really bad or I got COVID because I heard people that got COVID in Europe were not feeling taste. They weren't smelling or tasting anything. So I got really worried and I just, I didn't feel well, I couldn't move. So I, 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 I left the poor meal and I, I went to isolation, self-isolation just in case I did get COVID. And after three days, I couldn't breathe anymore. I got to the University of Miami. I was the first one admitted into the ICU. My lungs were gone. I had a terrible, severe case of COVID. The doctors said, we're going to try helping you, but we're not sure what to do. We don't know anything. COVID is a new thing. And it attacked my lungs, so they had to, eventually came over to me, they said they had to induce me into coma and put me on a ventilator. And I said to the doctor, I called doctors around the world, told my situation. One doctor I spoke to said, I said to him, what's my chances of survival if I in my situation with, with on a ventilator, the doctor says 5% chance. So I said, if it's a 5% chance, I have to say goodbye to my kids, say goodbye to everyone, I, you know, my wife, my kids, family, everyone, say goodbye to my friends. And um, I started calling everyone to say goodbye. And I said, I need a half hour to just say goodbye. And I said, I'm not going to survive this 5% chance survival. Is, is It's like nothing. And... Uh, being in the other end of the situation, usually I'm the one helping people. I'm laying there in bed and a Friday afternoon and I call my family. It was the hardest thing in the world. Say goodbye to your kids. And I was all alone. You know, usually a lot of people, when they die, they, they, they're at least with their family. The families around them, they couldn't be with me. No one could be with me. 
And then I send out a video to everyone, please take care of the organization I love so much. Make sure that even if I don't survive this, United Itself is still needed. Continue supporting and volunteering. And um, I couldn't believe it when a month later I woke up. They woke me up a month later. I couldn't believe where I was. I was, I was living for a few days in, in serious deliriums, ICU deliriums, and the worst feeling in the world, not knowing where you are and thinking you were kidnapped. And um, I couldn't walk. I was, you know, a month in a coma. You can't walk afterwards. I was, I had to go a long process of rehabilitation. And then I just have this image in my head of you coming off the plane in Israel. You were flown home on a private jet. Your family's waiting. You know, you look very frail, you know, but you're, I remember the videos, you're, you were very emotional. What was it like to have death that close to you? Listen, I wasn't afraid to die. The truth is, it's interesting. When the doctors told me that they're intubating me, and I saw already everything going on in Europe, I mean, Spain was terrible. Italy was terrible. New York was already terrible. I said, okay, I'm dying, you know. Thank God I did something in my life, you know, like I'm, I was 46. All right, I did my share, but I, I said, you know, if I could survive, it would be great because I still have what to do here. And I'm doing, I'm doing God's work here in this world. So I thought maybe God will have some pity on me, you know. And uh, when I woke up, I didn't want to go back to Israel. I was very depressed. I said, how could, how can I go through this? You know, like I did only good. Like, why was I going through this? Like, I, I was having a lot of questions. And it took me a few days to get back. And really, I heard about one story that was done in Israel while I was asleep. One of our volunteers did an incredible thing. I heard that story, and that gave me the motivation to, to go back to life. It was uh, five minutes before Passover, and a woman called United Atzala. She said, I'm 90 years old and I have nothing. I have I need help to save my life. I don't have no I have I need candles to light for Passover. And this is not a regular emergency. Yeah. This is like a humanitarian emergency. And they said, sure, we'll help you out. We never say no to someone. In the height of a lockdown, in the height of COVID. This is a, to a total lockdown in yeah. Israel. No one could leave their homes. And this woman for three weeks, she didn't go shopping. And she's living in Batyam. She has no one to turn to. She says, I need candles to light for Passover. And they send out the call. And the closest volunteer that was responded immediately by the, our GPS technology was a volunteer by the name of Ibrahim Ayuti, an Arab volunteer. And he jumped on an ambicycle and he went to a little makolit, a little bodega in Jaffa, and he bought a box of candles and a, and a bouquet of flowers from his own money, put it in the back of his motorcycle, ambulance, you know, the ambicycle. He drove over to Batyam, a few minutes away. To, he goes over to the top floor of a building, an old building. This lady opens the door, skinny, tiny lady, 90-year-old lady. She sees him. She starts crying. She says, you saved my life. And he, and he gives her the candles. She runs over. She says, give me a few minutes. I just need to light the candles. She, she puts on 15 candles, and she lights them. And then he sees she's all alone. He asked her, 
do you mind if I join you? I see you're all alone. I want to spend time with you. She said, no, go back to your family to do the Passover. He said, no, I'm Muslim. I'm not Jewish. So he spent, and then he sees she has on her arm, she has a number. She's a Holocaust survivor. So he starts getting emotional. Ibrahim gets emotional from this. And he spends two and a half hours singing the Haggadah with her. An Arab guy, never sang the Haggadah before, eating the matzah. And after about two and a half hours spending time, she got very tired. And he said he wants to leave, but he says, I want to ask you a question before, before I leave. Why did you say I saved your life? I just gave you candles. So she told him, Ibrahim, when I was a young girl, I grew up in Poland. I never missed a week lighting candles with my mother and sisters. My father and brothers used to go to synagogues, and we used to, we used to light candles together at home Friday night. And when the Nazis came and took my family apart, destroyed my family. And I never saw my family again. I was in a concentration camp. I decided to light candles every week, but I didn't have real candles. So I would create my own candles by using wood, dry wood or something to burn, even for a few seconds, or a piece of paper or something. And I never missed a week, even during the concentration times that I was in the camps, I never missed one week lighting for holiday or, or, or Shabbat, Friday night. And she said, when I got to Palestine, I decided to light candles for every one of the members of the family that were murdered by the Nazis. So 15 candles every week. I never missed one week until this week. I realized I don't have enough candles. And I said to myself, if I have to go back to lighting a piece of wood, this is the last day of my life. I'm not going to survive this. Last time, a few years ago, I didn't feel well. I, I, I had a heart attack. I called Hatzalah, United Hatzalah. You came immediately. Your volunteers came on the motorcycles and saved my life. So I said, if, I have to, if I'm dying, so I'll call Hatzalah, and you're going to come save my life again. And you came, Ibrahim, to save my life. When I heard this story, that's the story that gave me the strength to get out of bed and to start my physiotherapy. I knew that if an Arab volunteer gets all emotional by saving a Holocaust survivor, we have the right recipe for Israel. Wow. How long from when you woke up to when you went, you landed in Ben-Gurion? So I landed in, so a few days after this story with Ibrahim, I was ready to go, but I was very sick. And the doctors didn't want me to go. And they didn't have a direct flight to Israel anymore. You know, all the flights yeah. were shut down. El Al was shut down. So Sheldon Adelson, who was alive then, and his wife Miriam, they called my wife and they offered to fly me to Israel. And I took the, I said, yes, I'll go back to Israel. And they had a doctor and paramedic who joined me. And we, we landed in Israel. I had a th all my family there. It was about a week after I woke up, maybe a week and a half after I woke up. I was anxious to come back. And I, I couldn't even walk yet. And I had a thousand volunteers waiting for me in the airport. And I actually thought it was my funeral. I, I was like still in deliriums, like in illusions. I said a thousand, like it looked like a funeral. And I realized I'm not in a f my own funeral. And then I said, where is this Ibrahim? I want to see this guy Ibrahim. And he was there, and they called him over, and he, and I told him, you, your story helped save my life. Wow. 
How did your experience actually change your perspective on life? Because you always were about saving lives and, you know, being the first to respond and and making sure that that feeling that you had as a five-year-old, no one ever feels. But this experience is really dramatic and life-changing and eye-opening. And how did your perspective change? Well, I realized that every person has to be very humble. Humbleness is the most important thing in life. And I and I, I learned it from my experience. I was laying there in bed wearing a diaper, depending on other people to help save my life. I was I needed people to clean me. I couldn't move on my own. I couldn't eat on my own. And I realized in one second, no matter who you are, you could be the richest person in the world, the most powerful person in the world. In one second, everything could change. And you have to be thankful for what you have. You know, I'm... I remember if I said to myself, even if I can't walk, if I could be in a wheelchair, I'll be happy. You know, and I never thought I'm going to walk again. I couldn't walk. For a few weeks, I couldn't walk. And I said, even if I, like, I was, like, happy with what I have. And I said, if people have to, I realized being in my situation and also being a lifetime, 32 years, I seen the worst situations, accidents and, and bomb attacks and heart attacks and events and you see people that could be the most powerful people and all of a sudden everything changes for them or for their families so we have to stay humble that's the most important thing in my my perspective and what's one line of torah talmud or song or saying that kind of like sits in the back of your head that kind of is like the gas that keeps you going well i think the line that pushes me all day and night from the torah is Vehafta Larecha Kamucha, Sanhedrin from the Gemara. And if you think about it, it's the essence of the whole Torah. You know, if you love your neighbor like you want him to love you, Vehafta Larecha Kamucha, this world, if people would care about other people, because think about it, because they want good for themselves. The Torah says, Vehafta Larecha Kamucha, like you need to love others because you want them to love you, right? And it has to start by loving others. And you have to start by helping others. And I think the whole reason I'm alive today is because of that. I was always, I, I didn't have a chance to survive. My survival chance were very low. But I was alive because millions of people prayed for me and did good deeds in honor of me. And I think the energy of doing good deeds and praying for someone is strong enough to save someone. And I really think that I'm a lucky guy that my whole life I was there for others. And thank God it came back to me. And the half of the Kamukha is that's what I teach my kids all day and my volunteers. And they live it. They live it. They they live it by not only in theory and in their way of life. Amazing. May they continue to do so and may you continue to share your story because it's certainly a powerful one. Ellie Beer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Israelrescue.org. You can learn more, learn how to support the organization, how to volunteer. Israelrescue.org. I left Ellie and the impressive Hatzala headquarters thinking about suddenness. Instantly, it could all be over. What would we do if we actually realized our days and hours were numbered? Who would we be? Who would we spend this precious time on earth with? And most importantly, 
what would we do with our time? I think Ellie asks himself this question daily, as a man so close to death each day in his profession, and as a man who was so close to death in his own life by mere chance. I left Hatzella headquarters in a cab. I know I should have taken the bus, but I was running to my next interview. We sat at a stoplight, waiting for the longest light ever to change, so we could resume our day, complete our interviews, and then I could eat pizza. I was dreaming about the pizza. Really. Anyway, I heard a siren. I thought it was my mind playing tricks on me, or my heart romanticizing this experience, but it wasn't. It was a real United Hatzala motorcycle zooming past us through and around cars to attend to an emergency. Suddenly, I became less antsy. My hunger subsided, and gratitude slowly started to sink in. But the question remained after hearing Ellie's story. What would we do if we actually realized that our days and hours were numbered? Ellie answered this question many years ago. And he reaffirms it each and every day. I hope we all have the courage to ask ourselves this core question. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zine. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>